0: We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, as we continue our series called uh, The Way of Jesus, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount. Today we're looking at verses 27 through 30, and Jesus says this, and just as his disciples gathered at his feet uh, to listen, may we have ears to hear and eyes to see what Jesus is saying and doing. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body going to hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. But this is a difficult word from the Lord, isn't it? What a challenging passage. Of of all the passages in the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps the entire Bible, this certainly has got to be one of the most challenging Uh, Jesus is saying, look, you have heard it said, uh, do not commit adultery in the Ten Commandments, in the Seventh Commandment. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at another human being with lustful intent, you have already committed uh, adultery in your heart. And last week, he said the same thing with regards to anger and murder. He said, uh, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. But I say to you, if you've already had anger in your heart towards your brother, even saying, uh, you fool or you idiot, then you've committed murder in your heart. And who among us has not called somebody a fool or an idiot? And basically, what Jesus is saying is We have a tendency as good Pharisees, right, (laughs) like like the true Pharisees of Jesus' day, to see sin as something that is out there. Uh, Sin is the dirt on my hands. Sin is in your life. Sin is over there. But sin is not in here. But Jesus says you've got it wrong. Uh, And to the degree that you keep seeing sin as something out there and not in here is... Well, that's the thing that's keeping you, he's saying, from walking in my way and living in my kingdom. The Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders at this time, were giving men, not women, okay, many loopholes for divorce during that time. So a man could divorce his wife for almost any reason, bad cooking, uh, I don't like the way you look anymore, I'm just tired of this relationship, a certificate of divorce, And that woman would be placed in peril uh, financially. So because of that, almost no men in that society would ever be guilty technically of adultery because they would just move on. And yet those same Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders would walk around saying, thank God I'm not a sinner like those people, those adulterous, uh, sexually immoral people. And Jesus had commanded, in the, in, or excuse me, the Bible had already commanded, don't covet uh, anything of your neighbor's, particularly your neighbor's wife, wife uh, and be content. So Jesus is pointing out that the members of his kingdom, so members of the citizen, or kingdom of God, citizens in the kingdom of God, aren't looking for loopholes because they want to be pure in heart. They want to be pure in heart and love God from the heart. And that's the key. And this is what Jesus is constantly pointing us back to. Sin is not just out there. Sin is a matter of the heart, but so is righteousness. Righteousness is not found in, in just outward action. It's truly found in the heart, in intent, in motive, in what we love and what we are being motivated for. Jesus says this in Matthew 15, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. I've been reading a commentary for this uh, series uh, written by Curtis Mitch and Edward Sry, and they say this, Jesus does not want us merely to avoid the physical act of adultery. Obviously, he does, though. But he wants us to eliminate the root of sinful action And love from the heart. Lust is a selfish desire to use another person's body for one's own pleasure. That's a great definition. Let me read that again. Uh, Lust is a selfish desire to use another person's body for one's own pleasure. To embrace this desire poisons one's heart and blocks the development of love. And this is what's key. This is what's critical for us to understand. There are little decisions and big ones that we're making every day, every week, every month that are forming us, that are transforming us more and more either into the image of God and his kingdom and and what it means to look like Christ, walk with Christ, or more and more into the image of the kingdom of, of the evil one. It really is found in in the details. Of course, it's all bathed in God's grace, and it's all God's grace. But what what it's saying is to embrace this desire. When we continue to embrace lust, when we continue, continue to embrace small decisions that are forming us, they are poisoning our heart and blocking our development to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself. So, another thing I want us to see is this, and this is true of all issues, but Jesus is fully grace and truth. Jesus is fully grace and truth. We tend to be, if you haven't noticed, either uh, more gracious than truthful or more truthful than gracious, but Jesus is full of grace and truth, and neither of those character qualities are diminished in him. They're both full. There's a tendency, though, for us to approach the issue of human sexuality with either grace without truth. And can we just be honest, that is where our culture is currently. Uh, It is grace without truth. There is obviously no sense of truth from how we're arriving at our our conclusions about human sexuality to today. It's simply uh, whatever you want to do as a consenting adult, then that's fine. But in the church, we have at times, at least, uh, had a tendency to handle things with truth without as much grace as we should. Either grace without truth or truth without grace. But Jesus, in the way of Jesus, is to follow him full of truth, full of grace, and not diminishing either. But that's a tough road, uh, road to hoe and a, and a very uh, tough thing for us to walk in wisdom with. But we must, for this is what it means to walk in the way of Jesus. So as we begin this conversation, briefly, I want to give a a quick overview of creation and sexuality. Uh, Let's start at the very beginning once again. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that humanity was created in the image of God, and humanity is created male and female. God said that it was not good that Adam was alone, remember? And so he creates Eve for, for him, who was a fellow and equal image bearer of the living God. Eve is fully human, a full image bearer, and yet female, unlike a male. So different and, and beautifully different and complementing Adam beautifully. And so we see in creation that Adam's aloneness was not good. So he created Eve and a single-sex humanity was not a good thing either. And so he created Eve and yet female as opposed to male. And while Adam and Eve were the very first man and woman, husband and wife, they serve as God's foundation for what marriage is and for what sexuality is and gender and so forth. And this one flesh phrase that we find in Genesis and then later that Jesus teaches on and even amplifies is meant to describe, of course, the literal sexual union between a husband and wife. But it's analogous to even more than that. Of course, that's what it's representing, but it's analogous to even more uh, that the two become one emotionally, uh, that the two become one. Uh, hopefully spiritually, as two believers, Mary. The two become one uh, in every way. They become a new dynamic, that the world is to relate to them differently and should do everything in in your friends' and your community's power to see that union remain and not separate. And as a couple, that couple should be doing everything in their power to remain in that union and not tear apart that which God has joined together. This is what Jesus says, right? I actually have a wedding uh, this afternoon, and... We'll be going through the vows, and I tell any couple that I marry, you're happy to write your own vows. That's great, but we're going to stick to the traditional vows. I'm going to make you say the traditional vows. You can write whatever you want to say, but the vows we make are, are beautiful and poetic and fun, but they tend to have the same bite as the traditional vows. You know what I mean? Like... The ones we ride are like, I'll make coffee for you, baby, every week. You know, and I'm going to always promise to take out the trash, and I love you forever, and we'll ride bikes together in our old age and stuff like that. But, like, but the real vows are uh, in sickness and in health, uh, for richer, for poorer. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be here, remaining steadfast in this commitment. God's design for hu- human flourishing is that sex is to be enjoyed in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. And otherwise, God's call for humanity is celibacy. I want to back up for just a second and read that again. But in creation, I want you to hear and understand and fully understand this. God blesses the sexual union in marriage. It is good. It is beautiful. It's designed for procreation, of course, but for so much more than that. Deep intimacy, union, and even pleasure and joy. Look at the way God created this good gift. It is a good gift, uh, and, and it's blessed in sexual union and marriage. But God's designed for human flourishing, and this is a hard, hard word for us in our culture today. This is a difficult word. His design for human flourishing is that sex is to be enjoyed in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman, and otherwise, a call to celibacy, but the modern consensus, of course, is that as long as two or more adults are consenting, there is no harm. However, if we're honest, we have been hurt by those decisions if we, as we've chosen to, to live that way. And we've been hurt by others making those kind of decisions. My dad was married three times Uh, unfaithful in every one of those marriages and left a trail of broken relationships. And before the first service, I was sharing a story about my dad to somebody else, and it was a good story. My dad was actually, in spite of what I just said, I would still to this day, he died when I was 30, but would say he was a phenomenal father to me. He loved me. He supported me. He encouraged me. But he was a very bad example in this one and very important way. He was unfaithful to every woman he was married to, and he divorced every one of his three wives. His own rebellion against God's will for our life and what human flourishing can mean left a trail of brokenness in our family. If I took a poll in this room, and you were perfectly honest this morning, uh, the percentage of people who have been sexually abused or taken advantage of just in this room, men and women alike, of course we know women have been, but also men, the, the percentages would stagger you. The reality of of the amount of abuse that has taken place, the amount of of people asserting themselves improperly in these kind of situations and outside of the will of God has brought so much harm and damage to our hearts and our lives. Many of us have been sinned against as people, have revolted against God's will of sexuality, and all of us, if this passage is true, and we believe it's 100% true, All of us have sinned in our desires and actions with regards to our sexuality. All of us. So what the Bible teaches about sexuality is not an easy word to receive. Uh, This is a hard word. But God's will is not meant to rob us of joy. This feels so restrictive, so difficult, so impossible to follow. And yet what we also must embrace and believe is that God desires for us to have freedom enjoy into experiencing flourishing as he has designed it but this is a challenging call and i think as the church we need to own it for the young person who's not yet of meritable age this is a hard way to walk but jesus is calling you to walk with him in this for the single person who wants to be married and feels lonely and and it's difficult and it feels like it's been a long time. They've desired to be married but have not yet found the right person. This is a difficult road to walk in. Celibacy is difficult. For the person who struggles with homosexual desires and and, and feels like, I don't know if I'm ever going to experience anything different than this, this is a very difficult road to walk in. This is so hard. And yet Jesus is calling you to walk with him and the church to walk alongside you and to love you and support you. The, the person experiencing gender dysphoria, the families, uh, the parents of, of, of young people and, and old, older adults that have kids that are, are, are homosexual or, or who are experiencing gender dysphoria or some other thing that is difficult and outside of, of, of what may be God's will. Like, where do they go with that? Where do they get support? What, what community uh, do they have to experience? We have to be the body of Christ for one another as people wrestle with these issues more and more. And the thing about this passage is it levels the playing field, does it not? If Jesus is saying that lust is the hard attitude that causes us to fall short of his will for human sexuality, then every single person, every single person is broken and fallen and has need for God's redeeming and sanctifying work in this area. Every single person. So our main focus is the body of Christ. I think primarily should begin, as Jesus says it should, uh, not towards taking the log out of our neighbor's eye, or our brother and sister's eye, or the speck, excuse me, out of our neighbor's eye, but out of the log out of our own eye as as we begin this process. First, we see this today. That was the intro. (laughs) Trust me, there's a lot I cut out of this sermon. Lust is the heart of adultery. The amount of Pornography that's being consumed by both men and women and young and old people alike in our society is evidence that we have an enormous problem with lust in our hearts. What does pornography promise and what does it deliver? Well, it promises a lot, and apparently we're believing the promise because the economics of it is staggering. It's the number one e-commerce business in the world, uh, and and it's uh, in competition with the major sports of our nation, the NFL, the NBA. Uh, There is more being spent on this than there is on these major sporting events, and they make a lot of money. If you haven't noticed, the NFL is doing pretty good. What does it promise? What is the, the thing that it's promising? Because it does. Everything is a promise. All of our uh, temptations, they're making promises, and they're also uh, delivering. They're promising to deliver certain things. Well, it's a promise of fulfillment. It looks beautiful. It's a promise of intimacy. It's a promise of joy. It's a promise of release and freedom. But what does it deliver? Shame. Shame emptiness, sadness, brokenness, addiction. It's a dead-end trail of looking for false intimacy and yet always feeling empty and let down underneath the desire in, in for these connections, some of it is actually by the way we're created. Like we were created for intimacy. We were created for connection. We were created for union and passion and to not be alone. It was not good that Adam was alone. He created Eve as a compliment to him and for them to procreate and, and have sexual union together. And so it's hard and difficult to be celibate and to walk alone. But the incidence of pornography is happening as much in marriages as as it is in singleness. It it leads to addiction. It's a dead-end trail. It offers all these things and intimacy and connection and fulfillment, all these things, and it never works. It's so addictive. It feels innocent when you're younger. It feels as if this is something I can control now, but someday when I'm married and I've made a commitment to another human being, I'm going to just stop this immediately. But it doesn't work like that. It destroys intimacy in marriage. It undermines intimacy in marriage. It discourages that. Scientists have seen that it can rewire the brain. It gives nothing and it takes and it takes and it takes. But, brothers and sisters, God is after our hearts. And He wants to restore us, and He wants to bring purity. Why does this appetite or desire cause us so much trouble? And it does. We have to admit, this is uniquely problematic. C.S. Lewis famously says in, in Mere Christianity, he has this story, and he says, celibacy is by far <laughs> the least popular of all of the Christian callings of what it means to walk with Jesus But he says this too, it's uniquely weird how we have taken this one appetite and have amplified it so much. He says, imagine a bar is somewhere in England where they would take a mutton chop and put it under a plate and like, you know, 200 men would gather as the the lights and the music would pound and they would like expose the, the meat and then everyone would be like, oh yeah, and throw dollar bills at it, right? I mean, you'd say something's really weird about their love of, a mutton chop, I'm not even sure what that is, you know, a steak, a ribeye. You guys are really weird about your prime beef. That doesn't make sense. So ultimately, what we're talking about, Lewis says, is worship. Ultimately, what we desire, intimacy and acceptance and love and pleasure, all this ultimately is, is, is a form of worship. Humanity is uniquely created in the image of God, uh, no one else, in, uh, nothing else in creation has this image-bearing status. And so if we choose not to make God our number one Lord of our life, we're still going to worship. We are worshiping uh, creatures. We were made for worship. The the atheist worships as much as the, the believer. And so we're going to bow to something. We're going to look to something. And, and what um, the word is saying here is, this word for lust in the New Testament is epithuami, which means literally over desire or disordered love. If you're going to bow to something that's not God, the number one temptation is going to be another human being created in the image of God. Humanity is the closest thing we have to God. So if you're going to bow to something that is not God, of course we're most tempted to bow to the person who's created in the image of God. But we do so in this respect very selfishly, using the other. The first thing that I want us to see uh, in, in what Jesus is saying is first is this warning that of the heart disposition, but secondly is the call to fight lust. Terrifyingly, he says this in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And then he says, cut off your hand if you have to. Uh, It's better to lose that than to go into hell. So is Jesus literally causing us to physically maim ourselves? I mean, clearly, no. But a man named Origen did just that in church history. And so at the Council of Nicaea in 325, they forbade that practice. But what Jesus means by this is you need to fight this. And if he meant that we should take it seriously and fight it then, 2,000 years ago, when all you had in terms of lusting and being tempted was another physical person that you might see on any given day, how much more today would he say, brothers and sisters, fight this in light of the fact that we are inundated with lustful temptation everywhere we go all day long. We're called to fight. John Stott is a a well-known and famous pastor and theologian who's passed away and gone to the Lord, but he was a single man his entire life, an entire ministry. And so he knows what it was to walk in uh, the difficulty of celibacy, and he says this. What he is advocating was not a literal self-maiming but a ruthless self-denial. Uh, not mutilation but mortification is the path of holiness. He taught and mortification means to reject sinful practices so resolutely that we begin to put them to death. So while Jesus' is calling isn't calling for literal gouging of eyes and cutting off of hands, what he's saying is we must fight and my concern in many respects for all of us uh, as members of this culture and society is, is we're being pulled so heavily in a stream uh, that we don't realize how much we need to be swimming in the opposite direction. This is not a neutral thing. And so if you're not swimming at all, you're literally just being sucked uh, downstream and against God's will for your life. And to swim against it is, it's going to take intense swimming because uh, the the temptation is overwhelming and amazing. What I want to impress upon us is, is what Jesus is saying is the need to fight it, to fight the temptations, even in small decisions. Some of us have given up, others have never tried. But spiritual formation and sanctification is a, is totally a work of God's grace. But it also requires us to ask and to act. What are my chief sins? And then to begin working on them, not in order to be made right with Christ, not in order to be saved, but because you are. What are my chief sins? Is it anger? I must deal with that. Is it lust? I must deal with that then. if it, Is it greed? Then I must deal with this and begin to ask God to mortify this, begin to see it die in my heart. Augustine was right. We become what we love And I recently heard a podcast with David Brooks from the New York Times, who's become a follower of Jesus and about nine years ago began to investigate Christianity and has become a Christian. He says this, if you love God, you're going to become more like Christ, quoting Saint Augustine. And if you love money, you're going to become more greedy. We become what we love. And the other thing that I believe is true about um, spiritual formation and sanctification and, and changes is that the small things can actually impact us and it's it's a matter of details. Like every Sunday, I don't know when your phone does it, and maybe yours doesn't do it at all, but I get a report every week on Sunday of my weekly usage of my phone. It's pretty convicting, is it not? <laughs> And I've got to believe there's a correlation between uh, some of our over-desire in this area for this out-of-control appetite from all the images that we're constantly being but by on screens. I just can't can't believe that there's not a correlation uh, between our social media usage and our being triggered with this over-desire that seems so out of control, this appetite that seems as if it has no end. And so if you want to be spiritually foreign more into the image of Christ, it's going to take saying no to some things, and it may seem silly or small in some ways, but limiting your social media, I think, believe it or not, could impact your ability to walk with Jesus in this way. Ouch. Now that's preaching going to meddling, as they say. (laughs) Saying no, just saying no to some things, fleeing some things as well. Fighting. Fighting. One of the best ways to fight is to flee. Some of you need to flee a relationship because you're being tempted by an emotional uh, affair or a physical affair. Some of you need to flee certain friendships, parts of town, habits, social media, screen time. We, we limit our kids' screen time. Why don't we limit our own screen time? Are you taking this seriously or are you, have you given up? What does Jesus mean by gouging out our eye? He does not mean to literally gouge it out. So if that's true, then it means something, does it not? If pornography is a regular part of your life, there can be no more truce with this. There can be no more peace with it. This is at war with your soul. It's time, Jesus would say, to say, I have to fight. I have to say no to this. I need help. If you're having an emotional affair or a physical affair, there's really no peace that you can have with that. You can't just say, well, I'm just going to sort of continue in this. And the same is true with pornography. It needs to stop. It has to be gouged out. It needs to be cut off. But how? How do we do this? How do we even have the desire to want to We must believe that there's greater joy and fulfillment in walking in the way of Jesus than there is in the way of lust. That's a heavy ask, but that's the truth. And this is where the power is, friends. Is there more joy? Is there more freedom? Is there more flourishing in walking in the way of Jesus as opposed to walking in the way of lust? Because the entire world and everything in social media and our entire lives is screaming at us, this is the good life. This is the way to happiness. Self-expression. Don't let anyone limit your desires. You deserve everything you want and more. But it's empty. It's broken. And it's killing real people. Real marriages are being affected, and children. We must believe that there's greater joy and fulfillment in walking in the way of Jesus than there is in the way of lust. And what we're seeking in sex is ultimately fulfillment. It's intimacy. It's Oneness, it's pleasure. But ultimately, only God can give us this. Young people, single people assume, and I did this so much, that whenever I met someone, especially as great as Becky, if I could convince someone to marry me, and, and when Becky said yes to me or was moving toward me, you can't, I was more surprised than anyone, you guys. I couldn't believe it. But as we were dating and, and, and that kind of thing, and I'm just thinking, if I can ever convince her to marry me, it's going to kind of solve all my problems because she's so great, right? I mean, I'll never struggle with lust again if I can get a girl like her to marry. I could, I'll never battle this. I'll never deal with this difficulty because she's so amazing. But it didn't work. And she is incredible. <laughs> and our marriage is great, but it's asking far too much of another human being to fill you. You can't. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O oh God. This is another Augustine quote for you today. Only God can fulfill us. Only God can fill us up. If you're believing, you'll deal with your issue of lust later when you get older, later when you get married, later when your marriage gets better, etc., etc. It doesn't work like that. Today is the day. Today is the day you have to say, I I have to get right with this issue. And thank God for the gospel. Where would we go? We're all condemned according to Jesus' calculation of the law. But thank God for the good news of the gospel. And it's freeing in two directions. It's freeing us from judging other people because what Jesus has just said, you're as guilty as anybody else when it comes to sexuality. Every man, woman, child that has looked at another human being with uh, lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. So that should free us from picking up stones of judgment towards other people in society. Jesus is full of truth. There is a truth regarding human sexuality and the truth is none of us have lived up to that standard or walked perfectly in his righteous ways. So the church should be a place for anyone who says I want Jesus in my life and I want to walk with him. For anyone for anyone who says I've I have this issue in my life and I'm struggling I'm struggling with homosexuality, but I want to walk with Jesus. And whatever that means and all the difficulties and the mess of what that would mean, would you walk with me in that way? And the church needs to say, absolutely, we will. We're here for you. We will support you. We will love you. We will be friends to you. We will walk with you. We have no judgment. How can we pick up a rock to stone you when we have this adultery in our heart? For the person struggling with uh, gender dysphoria or whatever other issue or the, the parents of people that are dealing with this, how could we judge anyone except to say, if anyone w- wants to walk in the way of Jesus, we're here. And including those of us uh, uh, that, that are married or are just in dealing with lust to say, look, this is an issue that has to be dealt with. And we're no different than anyone else as it relates to this because we're all guilty. So we are freed from judging others. Jesus is full of truth and thank God he is full of grace. Thank God he's full of grace or we are all condemned to hell. The gospel also frees us from shame and, and he, because Jesus is so full of grace. Jesus is the one who embraces the adulterous woman when the rest of the town was ready to kill her. But he reminds them, who among you is is perfectly righteous in this area? If you are then pick up the rock and throw it, but they all they all knew they weren't. In Luke 7, a prostitute comes to him and falls at his knees and, and worships him and he receives her gladly and joyfully. Jesus is full of grace, and so the gospel frees us from shame, and the sexual revolution has been promising us a relief from shame. For the last fifty years, but it hasn't worked. All this—just do what you want, uh, live any way that you like, uh, as long as you're consenting—it's fine. It was meant to free us, but I, I don't know if you've noticed the shame thing seems to still be around in pretty, pretty strong measure. But Jesus is victorious over sin, over death. He lived his life, He died his death, and he rose again from the dead in victory, and, and He has killed our shame, destroyed it on the cross. By the way, shame is a horrible motivator, and it does never leads to sanctification or spiritual formation or growth. It's the opposite. but acceptance. When you realize the depths of how much you're loved, you can see see the falsehood and the false intimacy of pornography or lust or an adulterous affair because you've tasted the goodness of God and how wonderful it is to be accepted by a holy God. And in spite of your sin, you've been fully and finally accepted and loved. How beautiful. You can start to see the counterfeits. You're like Secret service agents just recognizing those counterfeit dollars that are coming. Like, this is counterfeit because I've seen and held the real thing over and over again. And that's false. I don't need it in my life any longer. The thing we're looking for underneath all of this is intimacy. Lust is a lie. It offers intimacy and it never provides it. It looks like beauty, but it's always a trap. And friends, what we need it's to walk in the light, to come clean, to, to, to bring whatever we're dealing with to another human being, to confess it and to repent. Of course to God. But what I've seen is the power of sin in your life to begin to mortify it like this, especially as it relates to sexuality, it begins by you having to be honest with another human being. God knows your story better than you do. So you, you need to go to someone and share what, what you're going through. Someone that's safe, of course. Someone that, that's got your back and that loves you. If you don't have anyone in, that, in your life like that, please let us know. We, we do have people like that for you. People that are ready to walk with you. We have to talk about these things. We need to, to be in community, not just once. But to continue, the reason why recovery groups are so successful is they're a place where people can be honest and vulnerable and real and tell their story in a place where people are not judging them. Man, the church needs to be that kind of place. Amen? Living in a community with transparency about your struggles and just saying, help me. Walk with Jesus because it's hard and I keep making promises that I say I'll never uh, break again, but I do time and again and I feel all of this shame. Say no to the shame. Believe the gospel and let's be the kind of community where we can be that vulnerable and real and transparent with one another. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. As the old hymn says, every hour we need you. But in light of this passage, Father, our our need for you is just overwhelmingly clear. We are powerless to change ourselves in this manner of our life, this area of our life. We are desperate for your grace, your mercy, your sanctifying, cleansing love. And I pray for us, dear God, that you would remind these, my brothers and sisters, of how beloved they are in you how much you know them, love them, care for them, are walking with them in the difficult parts of their story. For the people that have been sexually abused, uh, the people that have been taken advantage of, uh, Lord, would you walk closely with them, healing them. For people who feel caught and trapped in addiction and things that they feel as if they could never break, oh, Lord, give them hope that you are the king of glory that you are real and true and that your intimacy is real and true, that your freedom is good. Help us to not believe the lies that we're told, O Lord, and to walk in your ways. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.